0: I have two handouts today but I have only given you one of one of the handouts I will give you the uh, second part uh, when <coughs> when I I deem the moment opportune <laughs> uh, for because I do not want to prejudice you I don't wa- I do not want to uh, preempt the possibility of having you weigh in on a perspective before my uh, slides prejudices you I wish to uh, go through uh, in the first part of the of our uh, uh, class today, I wish to position the subject a little bit biblically a little bit historically and and what you have there is mostly a, a kind of a historical review of of the topic I wish to to focus on on today so i would I like to run through this part quite expeditiously. And then I will po- we will pause and I will ask some questions. And then I will use the, the last few of my slides and I will give you the second handout at that point And we will see uh, what we end up with. Uh, so there is the cosmic conflict and the future. And in parentheses, the future of America, because we will uh, have that as a... As a as a part, but not as a as a completely, you know, to the exclusion of all other concerns. So, just to uh, recap this, what happened to cosmic conflict theology? It it had its best days in Christianity in pre-Constantinian days, with the exception of John, uh, of, with the exception of John Milton and Paradise Lost to a large extent, and with the exception of Ellen G. White in Adventist theology, because there is no articulation of cosmic the- conflict theology that is as clear in post-Constantinian Christianity as what you find in origin, what you find in pre-Constantinian Christianity. You have to wait for a long time till you hear any cosmic conflict perspective as clear as that uh, John Milton and Later than LNG white, so that is one uh, one uh, perspective. And then uh, we also said that in the post-Constantinian theological pri- priorities change, where the, the there is a large view, a large perspective here in the pre-Constantinian uh, uh, times, and then there is a much a shrinking perspective, new priorities, you might say, where the larger frame largely disappears, and the new priorities will be the Trinity, salvation, Christology, and not to forget, I didn't put that in your printed version of the handout, but not to forget power that Christianity now grapples with the power that comes to it the church is now in the seat of power as it were so that changes things quite a lot the biblical perspective for for the topic today uh, the best text <coughs> and a wonderful text it is is this text in john eighteen thirty six. jesus jesus is in conversation with pilate a conversation that begins with pilate has the initiative Pilate has the upper hand. there is a power discrepancy between Jesus and Pilate, where the p- Pilate is in the sort of power, seat of power, and jesus isn 't and Jesus immediately manages to shift that power by asking Pilate asks him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Jesus asks him, "Do you say this of yourself, or did somebody el- else tell that of me and by answering Pilate with a question jesus changes the dynamic of the conversation. Who interrogates whom from that question onward? Pilate Jesus or Jesus Pilate? Surely it changes. Jesus takes the initiative and Jesus is driving the conversation. And so, uh, very early on in this conversation, Pilate will ask him, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And I'll just, I would not uh, uh, embroider on that text except to say that this text seems to empower constitutionally or sort of ideologically or theologically, a notion of separation of church and state. It seems to take Jesus out from a sort of temporal aspiration to make his aspiration a spiritual aspiration that will have consequences, of course, but it is not primarily a temporal aspiration. So Jesus has here also in some ways given us Uh, a statement on the character of the kingdom of God. The second biblical perspective I just wish us to revisit briefly, and I will not uh, uh, read the text, but chapter 13 in the book of Revelation, which in our community has been regarded as a key chapter in this book, is a chapter that seems to say that that the, that uh, there is a merger there, that the beast that rises from the sea that stands in continuity with the empires of history that culminates in this presentation in a roman empire and that that sort of empirical uh, creation that empirical reality uh, assumes christian characteristics assumes sort of absorbs uh, Christian characteristics to become a Christian empire, to become what you might even say a Christian Roman empire. But I'm not going to, to, to argue that point now, I'm just going to, to uh, just about take it for granted uh, because we have been over that ground here and, and uh, uh, we have sort of done, done some of our work on that. Christianity becomes a kingdom of this world in Constantinian days. And what is most remarkable about that transformation is the enthusiasm with which the church greets it. I don't think that can be overestimated. When Eusebius writes his history, and and it's quite easy to read... Uh, you, uh, you Eusebius's history of the Christian church and his history of Constantine is quite easy to read it's not complicated it's not really very academic it is highly uh, uh, highly sort of uh, uh, you know it's narrative character it's very striking and and what he is doing there is, of course, to enthusiastically embrace Constantine, even though Constantine was not exactly a virtuous person. In some ways, just on the verge, just before the Council of Nicaea, which is a while after his converse, uh, his conversion, he, uh, you know, you know, you know what your historian uh, is up to when you see what he fails to write. What he fails to include, and he fails to include that uh, that Constantine uh, f- uh, w- became furious with one of his with his wife and actually had her executed, I think one of his sons too in a fit of rage uh, sometime early in the three twenties <coughs> but augustine uh, Eusebius doesn 't mention that because he 's so happy to have this emperor on board, and he thinks that will be a great. Uh, boon to to Christianity, and that uh, Constantine and his sons made it their very first action to cleanse the world from hatred of God. That's uh, from Eusebius, and H A H no A H M Jones, who is has written a two volume work on this history, and, and one uh, that is <coughs> the, the book I am quoting from here is a shorter version of the larger book. The church had acquired a protector, but it had also acquired a master, says Jones. And, he continues by saying later in the book, Christianity thus became the official and gradually also the normal religion of the Roman Empire. The effect on the church was mainly bad. To the empire, the official change of religion made little difference. The old corruption and oppression of the masses by officials and landlords went unabated. And the last remnants of public spirit faded away almost like you know publicly, politically, this was a deterioration of sorts for the ones the the, the, the socially disadvantaged or economically disadvantaged people of the empire. we won 't belabor the point augustine <coughs> Augustine, who is a truly ambiguous figure because there is so much good to be said about him. But what needs to be said about Augustine in this context is that he is the one who writes as the first, uh, the first uh, uh, sort of uh, heavyweight thinker in the church, that he is the one who writes <coughs> the, f- the only full justification in the early church of the right of the state, state to suppress non-Catholics, to, to devise, to develop a theology of why it is justified to change somebody's opinion by force, to change their, their their mind by force, and to find a way to say that you can do that, and it is to their benefit that you do that. Because if they hold erroneous opinions, they will thank you later on that you that you uh, help them change your, their opinions, even if you uh, they did so. You did it by force. You see what what's going on here. And Elaine Pagels, many others. It's interesting to see that some of the ch- uh, great church historians of this period are, are, are women, such as Elaine Pagels at, at Princeton and Elizabeth Clark at Duke University, who have been interested in this period. And Peter Brown is probably the leading scholar in that field. So so where are we? So Constantine and now uh, Justinian, who is uh, about 530 uh, and uh, and I don't want to say much about these people because, but in Procopius' history, what is called the secret history, he wrote. Procopius was the official historian of Justinian's day, and Justinian is the great lawgiver, uh, so Roman law, the great codifier of Roman law. But Justinian uh, here this. I have always wanted to get to Ravenna in Italy to see this picture. I never have made it yet, but I'm planning to get there some <laughs> someday because I want to see this this thing in person. This, uh, uh, this is quite an, uh, a prestigious uh, uh, mosaic from the Byzantine period of, of uh, Justinian. There is now a Christian state, no holes barred, and the estimate of Procopius is that about a million Christian dissenters, people who were mostly Aryan in their Christology or had other heretic, had other Christological views that were considered to be heretical, they were they were you know they were not deemed worthy of surviving. So so there was a death penalty in force for these people who held what you and I today would would say. Were, were pretty innocuous heresies. But they were not considered to be innocuous heresies in those days because the Christian Roman state uh, ran tests of belief that were much more rigorous than the pagan Roman state had done. See, you have to, to, to make some adjustments in our thinking about that. We're just running through this very quickly. Now we are, all, we are at the end of the 6th of the century and we have a, the most scholarly pope of, his, of, uh, of the Roman Catholic papacy. The most scholarly pope until the current pope. Probably the most scholarly, the best educated pope ever in the history of Roman Catholicism is the current pope, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Ratzinger uh, because, but Gregory the was also uh, quite a student, and and that is what this uh, mosaic is is trying to to tell us. So what has happened by now? Rome was its pope. That is to say that he is a kind of personification of of, of Roman imperial or or of the Roman imperial uh, ideal, and he is also saying Peter Brown again, who is uh, who is a an authoritative source as like like few uh, could can claim to be that he is seeing a, some sort of continuity between the structure the imperial structure the imperial system of government and the system of government in the christian church that why do you have bishops why do you have hierarchy why do you have it shaped that way because you are basically taking over a structure of a hierarchical structure of privileged and largely unaccountable uh, 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 people in authority that sits at the top of that pyramid so much more we could say about him we need to say one more thing about him uh, look at few uh, look 10 years ahead in history 20 years ahead in history what is happening elsewhere from him he dies in 603 20 years downstream we will have the rise of islam moving into a political environment where you have where you have had persecution savage persecution of some of the of some of the at least beliefs that will resemble the beliefs the Christology of Islam. So, so you may you may say in some ways that Islam could be seen as a as a uh, sort of you know a, uh, how should we say it as a reaction to, to uh, Justinian persecution uh, that 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 those beliefs beliefs don't necessarily go away by persecution they might just go underground and reassert themselves at some other time. And also one more thing about Justinian, that he waged some very expensive wars trying to reclaim the western part of his empire. And when he had done that, he had basically run out of money and resources, so his own eastern empire was not in a good shape to face the changing political realities. The donation of Constantine, what was that? What was the donation of Constantine? You and I might dismiss this as a kind of joke in our time, it and uh, not think much of it. But what was it? Well, the do- donation of Sto- uh, Constantine was a document. That uh, this is, uh, there, there is a much better and more prestigious painting of this. If you go to the Vatican and you go to the uh, Raphael rooms, Many of you have been to the Vatican's and you've been in the Raphael rooms, haven't you? And what have you seen? He painted the conversion of Constantine. He painted various things. There is a Constantine room there, devoted all, all together. Raphael, who was such a wonderful, great painter, he paints the the, the most important uh, incidents in the history of, of Constantine. And one of the... Uh, this is not his painting, but... Uh, the, this is the this is Constantine handing to the Pope the Pope in that time was named Sylvester. Constantine hands to the Pope the deed to the city of Rome and to all the possessions all the territory belonging to to uh, to basically Italy or much of Italy, and says that that the the emperor the the, the Emperor cedes control of as a as a temporal ruler that the Emperor will not rule Rome and its immediate environs, who will rule it? the Pope will rule it, so the Pope is now a bona fide temporal ruler now this this uh, donation of Constantine, then he uh, what does he say here? how does it read? Uh, just read a sentence or two from the middle here. <laughs> Behold, we are giving, giving over to the oft-mentioned most blessed pontiff, our father Sylvester, the op- uh, universal pope, as well as our palace, as has been said, as also the city of Rome and all the provinces, districts, and cities of Italy, or of the western regions, and of relinquishing them, and so on. Anyway, <coughs> this is a contractual deed. That was that the Emperor Constantine supposedly uh, deeded over to to uh, to the, the Pope. Have, you've heard of of this? You have never heard of it? My, I am doing something very important today. <laughs> I am educating you <laughs> ever so slightly. Now this deed surfaced around eight hundred A.D. This deed surfaced around 800 AD, but Constantine—when did he disappear from history? 337. So this is about 500 years, four to, you know, some 500 years after the time of Constantine. This deed surfaced about, you know, so four, five hundred years later, it surfaces, and it was prestigious enough. It it shaped the mindset of people of that age enough that. You know these that there are pictorial depictions of it uh, of, of many kinds in many churches, including in that room uh, by Raphael in the vatican the, st- the stanzas of raphael it's, uh, that room is called, which is basically which is basically a room people who go to visit these places do not understand the the message really the subliminal message is a message of political propaganda. But we think it is only mostly a, a way to see great medieval art. And people come from China, from Japan, from the U.S., from all over Europe to see this. And I think it is lost on most people that this is just a political propaganda of its time, now sort of made innocuous by, by the passage of time and by the greatness of its art, because the art is truly great. So, the donation of Constantine... What else is there to say about that? It is the greatest forgery of of medieval Europe. Lorenzo Valla, who was who exposed it in the early in the mid 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 Renaissance era, say around 1440, he showed that this was just a made up. There was never such a donation of Constantine. It was just, you know, but it was not that controversial even when he exposed it as a forgery. And 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 and, a, and a quite a, an amazing forgery. Even when he exposed it, it was already taken for granted that the shape of church-state relations uh, should be that way. Even if Constantine had not done it, it did not evali- invalidate the church the church's claim to political power. You see what I'm saying? You know. So you expose it, but so what? You see? That's the that's the the idea luther when luther when it dawned on luther that this was actually a forgery he had the hardest time coming to terms with it because everybody thought this was the way it was meant to be charlemagne he is he is the he rules at the time when there is a power shift and when the see the the roman empire that has existed prior to this time prior to the 8th century is an empire mostly in the eastern, the Byzantine Empire, Byzantine Roman Empire, but the papacy, sensing that the winds of the future are going to blow westward, decided to shift to instead of saying that the Roman, the Roman emperor has its se- has his seat of power in 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 Constantinople. Can you see that? Can you see the map there? Instead of, instead of going with tra- tradition, where the Roman Empire rules from Constantinople, decides by just one major shift to say the Roman Empire of the future will not be in Byzantine t- uh, the territory. He will be uh, a, a, a Frank. So this is the Franks, uh, that, or the, this is the king of France, Charlemagne. Charlemagne. And, and uh, he comes to Rome and he is praying on Christmas Day. And, the, and the, <coughs> the Pope of that day decides to ambush him and crowns him Emperor of the Roman Empire against Charlemagne. Charlemagne didn't really want that because why didn't he want it? Well, why didn't Charlemagne? Charlemagne how do you say it, Charlemagne? Charlemagne is okay? Charlemagne. <laughs> uh, so why didn 't he like it to be ambushed with the crown? Should have been happy he didn 't like it because because the the body language of that occasion made it seem that it is the Pope that bestows temporal authority. You see, so that was a clever thing. It was carefully rehearsed by the by the pope and his and his uh, 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 helpers it was clear, uh, carefully rehearsed and and charlemagne afterwards was furious because he had been upstaged and ambushed like that and now he was sort of stuck and the body and and that message has sort of reverberated through the centuries that it is the pope that is bestows temporal authority it gets worse this is uh, the guy this is the picture of the of the Pope receiving uh, uh, Henry II, who is uh, barefoot here, who comes. This is Canossa in 1077. Uh, And uh, there are many depictions of that, but we don't need to say much more about it. The high tide of church temporal power, of Christian temporal power, is uh, during the papacy of Innocent III, who launched the First Crusade. And I wish to remind you that the Crusades are the Christian version of jihad, holy war. Don't for a moment think that Muslims were the ones who invent, to invent the notion of holy war. They had been thoroughly mentored by Christians to do holy war. And, and actually, I think the holy wars of the Crusades were in many ways more, more uh, egregious than than. than uh, what you might say about Muslim ventures in that respect. It was the Fourth Crusade or the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade that sacked Constantinople in two, 1204 and created just incredible animosity, probably incurable animosity between Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Church. They had had a schism 200 years or 150 years earlier. This is the time of persecution of the Walden Seas and this is the time of a formulation of a doctrine that the Pope has the right to interfere in, Christ- in temporal affairs, ratione peccati, for because of reasons of sin. Wherever sin is committed, there you, as a religious figure, can intervene. And sin is Committed all over the place, so there is really no, no sort of off-limits idea. You 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 have given yourself a very broad mandate when you say that you can intervene in, in temporal affairs. Ratione peccati. It is quite amazing to be so, so uh, <coughs> to have it figured out like that. <coughs> now we're jumping forward, fast forward here to uh, Napoleon. Some lessons learned, two lessons that I wish just to mention very quickly. The lesson, one lesson that, that was learned is, is how Napoleon comes into power when the French Revolution kind of goes to seed, and how quickly a country like France can go from what you thought was a genuine belief in democracy, a genuine belief in the, in, in the rule of the people, and go so quickly to to imperial rule you know how do you have such an over such a conversion experience overnight you know the the belief in democracy cannot have been very deep when you a few years later can crown a you know return to imperial rule you know and again in a sort of roman imperial sense, uh, sense. so so that's one one uh, one thing and a second thing is that that Napoleon must not be seen as the person who diminishes church power he must be seen as a person who actually restores it to some extent that because Napoleon was a pragmatic person and he understood that you needed religion to some extent that he was not planning to do to do uh, 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 egalité and fraternité you know he was not planning to do equality and, and brotherhood he was planning to do inequality in, and all kinds of things and when you have inequality in a great measure you need religion to sort of smoo- to sort of smooth it over so Napoleon understood that re- some religion was necessary and so he planned to just put put the uh, uh, you know, religion in, back into the equation as it were and you, because you know that the French Revolution had sort of disenfranchised religion in a big way. Now what's the third lesson? So you move from democracy to imperial rule without seeming to miss a beat. You know, it's quite amazing. And then you uh, also restore religion uh, as he did. And the third lesson, this was a Commission painting. The painter was there in the audience. Napoleon planned his coronation with as great care as he did his wars. This man knows how to do, you know, we sh- sh- should have had him here to plan our graduation ceremonies. My, we could have had some really ostentatious events if we, if we did that. <laughs> so So what is, the, what is the message here? How does Napoleon get, get uh, you know, how do they do it? And he, what did he mean to say by that? What was the, what is the lesson learned? He was not going to make the mistake that Charlemagne had done earlier and be taken, you know, unawares. So Charlemagne had been crowned by, by, by the Pope. You know, the body language of that. But you know, the Pope was sitting there, and Napoleon takes the crown. And this is, you know, this is the <coughs> the. This is a sort of forerunner of the American supermarket. Self-service, you know. Nobody, <laughs> n- nobody gives it to you, you know. So that, is the, that, is the, is, is, that was carefully cho- choreographed and, and deeply conscious of historical precedent because the historical precedent had been, you know, the notion of, that the Pope had supreme temporal authority and no more of that for Napoleon. Into the at the late eighteenth century and into the nineteenth century we see the temporal power of the church in decline. But you still have you still have a territory here that are considered papal states where the the, the where the Pope is the temporal ruler. You have to understand that that the people who live in that area their head of state is who? Their lawgiver is who? Their elections happen when? Whenever there is an election of a pope, see. So there is that is the you know churchwide. So these citizens of that area have how much say in who rules them? You know the consent of the governed, all those things. You can see the the, the paradigm there. So uh, <clears throat> this is uh, this is the time. This is the Pope of the days of Napoleon, who he put uh, uh, sort of under lock and key for a while. But but uh, but there is still a, a temporal domain. In the year 1804, I have not had a chance to review this subject in detail uh, for this this occasion. But I have. Studied it a little on other times. In 1804, the the number of countries that had ambassadors at the Vatican, or what we today call the Vatican, but which was that the Vatican, of course, is a creation of more recent times, but the the number of countries who had ambassadors uh, at the Holy See had shrunk to four. That was it was definitely in decline. It was in decline because of what? I'll just give my bias. For very good reasons. Mostly reasons of overreach. Mostly reasons, if I may put it in in those terms, mostly because people were simply fed up. That would be a way to say it. So there is a reason for this. And then we move to, to... uh, in many ways, the pope that is seen as the pope when the Roman when the papacy has, is at its lowest power is at its nadir. But those who read between the lines will know that this is the pope that actually creates the shape of the modern papacy. Pius the Ninth. He is the longest serving of the popes, and he is the pope. During his time, Italian nationalism runs rough, runs over all of Italy. Italy is still not a well-unified country. The north of Italy is not too happy to be part of the south of Italy, and if the north northerners in milano had their way they would they would uh, actually separate from from the south there is a strong political party in in northern italy where in the much more affluent part of italy that actually wants to kick the the south out Uh, but there is nationalism and all these names that you learned in the in in history and that we ought to know Uh, but (coughs) some of us may have forgotten them Uh, those there, there is this uh, drive to Italian unification, which happens in, the, in 1870. And in 1870, the Pope loses the last part of his territory. So now the, the Roman Church is without temporal power. It has nothing left, not even the Vatican. But listen to the ideology here of Pius IX. This is a a priceless statement here that he makes on the occasion of this. God's purpose in providing the successors of St. Peter with temporal jurisdiction was to enable them to perform their spiritual duties in complete freedom and security. What does he say? what What is he saying? He is saying that his notion of a free church is a church that needs temporal power. It needs to be a kingdom of this world in order to fulfill its spiritual mission. Is that the teaching of the New Testament? Is that what Jesus is saying when he is talking to Pilate and is saying, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight for me. You see, the ideological commitments here are unshaken. It is an ideological commitment to seeing temporal and spiritual power uh, uh, not being dissociated so he is responsible for the, the, that very contentious doctrine of papal infallibility and, and it's a, these are curious things but we don't need to do the, the fine print on, on those he is also the, the, the person who uh, gets acceptance for the doctrine of Mary's immaculate conception that's also from his legacy of, uh, as a pope and uh, so, uh, but uh, this man is in some ways not a. He doesn't see himself. He doesn't behave. He's not, you know, sexually immoral. He's not, uh, you know, in, t- in materialistic terms. He's not living, living the excesses of the medieval papacy he is in some way seen as a sort of clean-cut spiritual figure who is now fighting against uh, you know, nasty forces to take those, spiritual, those uh, uh, things away from him. Uh, let's just do one more thing. I want you to hear the phrase, Pastor and Prince, <coughs> quoting from that same document from 1870. And indeed, as our predecessor Pius, Pius VII said, to do violence to this highest power of the apostolic See, to disjoin its temporal authority from its spiritual power, to disassociate, separate by force, and cut off the duties of pastor and prince is nothing less than to overturn and destroy the work of god that 's his statement, and the notion what what should we hear? The notion of the pastor and prince concept, because political Christianity is a creature not like other churches, not like the Baptist Church or the or or, or the churches that uh, sort of where, where does the head of the Baptist Church rule? Where is his what? Where is his country? Where is baptism located in in terms of temporal power? It's a different conception. Of how the kingdom of God is put together, see that's the, that's the, 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 the idea here. Now, the first amendment in the u.S. constitution, uh, it was proposed uh, I have reviewed this in uh, I think 1788 or '89, and it was voted in 1791. It is really a, a, a statement that is quite without precedent in constitutional thinking in the history of. Of of certainly the history of western civilization Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof now I have been interested in this subject for some time but I know I had William Estep the author of that book Revolution Within the Revolution he is the foremost historian in the the Southern Baptist uh, communion he is a great church historian he he. He died in uh, uh, ten, eleven years ago. But he was my guest in Norway. I invited him uh, uh, when he had retired because I wanted to do a to do a a, a meeting on uh, church-state relations, and I tried to cooperate with other free churches in Oslo. We had we had participation, good participation from the Baptists, and we had some participation from the Pentecostals. It it was you know reasonably successful. Just a lovely man, just a wonderful person. He has written a wonderful book on the history of the Anabaptists. I'd say that the most interesting history of the Anabaptists was written by William Eastad. He's also written a great book on Reformation history. And he has written this book on the history of the First Amendment, showing how free, how people from the free church Anabaptist tradition came together with the founding fathers who were not nearly as religious as evangelicals think they were, today think they were and how they together made the first amendment possible because it was unprecedented and you as Americans sh- should be extremely proud of having a constitution that took a subject a so vexing subject to such a high level now easter in our house he said to me, in tears, that his own church has walked away from it, that this which this what used to be a cornerstone of Baptist of the baptist sense of identity has been eschewed, has been eclipsed completely. The foreword in his book is written by Bill Moyers, who studied at at the uh, at the East Epps institution, Southwestern Baptist Seminary. I think Bill Moyers might even have an MDiv degree. I think he, he is trained in theology. And and Bill Moyers has written the foreword to, to his book, and I have a statement there later from, from Bill Moyers. But why are we talking about this? We're talking about it to see what how the American contribution lines up, because... The American uh, uh, framework is so different. Here is a, a couple of statements from from the book from uh, from uh, uh, revolution within the revolutions. Uh, I believe that no one person in a Baptist preacher says, "I believe the notion of the separation of church and state was the figment of some infidel's, infidel's imagination and Jerry Falwell, the late Jerry Falwell. He says unambiguously, we are out to change the First Amendment. Now, the other argument that evangelicals make is that the First Amendment never meant, was never intended to to do separation of church and state. They say that was this wall of separation was something Thomas Jefferson happened to say in a letter to a friend. And that's true. That expression is found there. But I think that is that is a... A very specious way of underestimating how the founding fathers actually saw uh, saw the first Amendment, so here is a conversation between Larry King and uh, and, uh, and uh, James Dobson, and James Dobson is usually thought of as a as a somebody that you would like to raise your children, but I will just say that that I do what <coughs> I'm going to say this with, in all due respect. I do not want him to get anywhere near my children. I say it in all due respect because he doesn't seem to understand something extremely basic here. Here is Larry King. We have a separation of church and state. Dobson, who says? King, you don't believe in separation of church and state? Dobson, not the way you mean it. The separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. And then he goes on to quote you know, Jefferson. That, that was something Jefferson said. It was never intended. And he doesn't believe in it because he thinks that, that America should be a Christian country and should in some ways have a Christian version of Sharia law in, 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 in this country. That, is, uh, that, I think, is his commitment. Now, there is a voice of principle here, and I need to share with you my admiration for this man. He said in 18, uh, 1986, because this is a person who seems to have thought it through from the ground up. His days of teaching Sunday, Sunday school as a Baptist seems to, to me to have connected him profoundly with an ideological turning point in modern times, I am a Southern Baptist and I have always believed in a total separation of church and state. And I think the interjection of religion into politics is not good for this country. Now, who started that? Who started inviting evangelicals to the White House? Richard Nixon. Who disinvited them? Jimmy Carter. He stopped that, that that tendency to invite evangelical and church leaders because I think he understood what was going on, that that mixture was not good. Well, it didn't last long because, you know, since, him, since his days, uh, that has just taken off completely. Jimmy Carter is no longer a Southern Baptist, as you know. In the year 2000, he left the Southern Baptist Communion. When he discontinued his membership, he wrote very poignantly, I think, that I am not leaving the church. The church left me. Because this, because at that time, it had come to such a head in the Southern Baptist communion that his denomination had abandoned what used to be seen as, a, as an identity-shaping, fundamental belief of the Southern Baptist paradigm, of the Baptist paradigm in general. Because baptism... Baptism, the, Baptist, the theology of, of believers' baptism is, is a theology of freedom. That belief cannot be coerced and cannot be shaped politically. It, is a, it needs to be given sort of freely. That is, ba- that is Baptist theology. That's anabaptism. Anabaptism was meant as a pejorative term, that they were re-baptizers. The uh, Baptists have never believed they were re-baptizers. They have always thought that baptism, there is only one kind of baptism, believer's baptism, you see. So so this is something I just wish an institution like Loma Linda would invite Jimmy Carter to come and speak from principle on the subject of separation of church and state, a subject he has understood as no political leader in recent memory in, in, in North America has understood it. And this is one man who certainly didn't understand it. Here is the here is the uh, the lots of images here, but this is from an article that Carl Bernstein wrote in Time magazine in the in the I don't know which year, but you can easily find it. It is at the time when in the heydays of of of, of the struggle to bring down communism in Eastern Europe. In that. Reagan, by the way, was the, was the president who, who, who first agreed to send an American ambassador to the Vatican. The U.S. Was a, was a long holdout on sending ambassadors to the Vatican because of its tradition of separation of church and state. Well, that point was overcome because Reagan was a much more shallow person in his grasp of history and a much more shallow person in his grasp of principle when it comes to issues related to church and state. So this, what what time here calls a holy alliance, someone from my background and someone as disinhibited as I would like to be on a subject like this, will say this was no holy alliance. This was a most unholy alliance in so many ways. Reagan and the Pope agreed to undertake a clandestine campaign to hasten the dissolution of the communist empire, declares Richard Allen, Reagan's first national security adviser, This was one of the great secret alliances of all time. And here is a, another one from, coming from the East. This is Michael Gorbachev writing in La Stampa, an Italian. It should be a T there. It isn't La Stampa. It's La Stampa, the, the name of the newspaper there, 1992. I took this from translation of this article in a Norwegian newspaper years ago. Today it is possible to say that what happened in Eastern Europe in the course of the past years would not have, happen, not, would not have been possible without the Pope without the leading, the political role he played on the world stage. Two world leaders, one communist, one capitalist, one from the unfree world, one from the free world, both seem to have no compunctions uh, uh, over the problem of letting a Christian state, a sort of Christian political entity, back onto stage back into the thick of it in, ma- in sort of, you know, shaping the political realities of, of, of modern times. Do you hear what I'm trying to say here? That that the ideological, I do not blame Gorbachev nearly as much as I think the Western uh, s- uh, sort of uh, lack of sensitivity on this subject uh, is due to uh, deserving of more criticism that that, This is just a a, a strange, strange occurrence that this was allowed to happen. One final thing here, the role of America, the the American view of Israel. And I hope you will tune in on Tuesday. On Tuesday, Benjamin Netanyahu will give a speech to the U.S. Congress. Not many foreign leaders are invited to speak to your Congress to get to share their view you know, who gets to talk to Congress? Lech Levelleza Le- Wawensa, he taught, spoke to Congress. A few foreign leaders get to do it. But on Tuesday, <coughs> Netanyahu will speak to Congress, and he will try to undercut Obama's recent attempt to make peace be- between Israel and Palestine. He will sort of go under the, under in some ways go directly to the, the legislative branch of your government, on this subject. King, you said that the support of Israel is God's foreign policy. Dobson, no, well, I didn't say that. Somebody else said it. I think that was a headline somewhere in New York Times. King, I'm sorry. I thought they were quoting you. Dobson, I do believe that Israel is covenant land. That's very controversial, but I read the Bible literally, and I believe that God gave them that land all the way back to Deuteronomy. That's what we're reading right now. There it is. Is that the ideology of Jesus? This is a prominent evangelical representing many who also seem to believe that there is a political structure in our time that is somehow advancing God's kingdom. That that is really where the real story is. God's kingdom is... Is there and he and many of the dispensationalists think that the Christian history is sort of just an intermission before the real history of God's kingdom resumes in the in the state of Israel. Here is a, a one final couple more. Israeli and American lapel flags were in abundance as were red, white, and blue buttons that read "I vote the Bible." One of the biggest changes in politics in my life lifetimes, says Bill Moyers is that the delusional is no longer marginal. It has come in from the fringe to sit in the seat of power in the Oval Office and in Congress. For the first time in our history, ideology and theology hold a monopoly of power in Washington. I'm quoting that with approval. And I'm also quoting it because Bill Moyers was a student of William Easter, a good student of William Easter who wrote that book on the revolution within the revolution, the revolution that the First Amendment represented in the history of human civilization and in the history of Christianity. To my conclusions, a key element in cosmic conflict theology is the embrace of the church by the state and vice versa. The notion of the Christian state, Roman Catholic or otherwise, is an enduring feature of history. For the past 30 years, this notion has been fervently promoted by professing American Christians and by dominant political forces in the United States. That is what I think is a subject, is, is a topic that belongs in the context of the cosmic conflict and the future of America.